I think we should be looking at tax cuts. You know, when people have more money, then they spend more money. That would help people a lot more than giving money to, you know, big organizations. And, you know, nobody knows where it goes. Hi, and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum in Washington, D.C. And I'm Laura Conaway in New York City. Today is Friday, April 17th. That clip you just heard came from a tax day tea party in Michigan, courtesy of WLAJ-TV. On today's show, we're going to go deep with the banks. Some of the big ones seem to be doing better, maybe. And we're also going to hear from one guy who designs computer circuits. He's been waiting to see if his office is going to close, and then he got an email that he found not so helpful. But first, David, a dose of optimism from what I'm going to go ahead and call an unusual quarter. It's the Planet Money Indicator. Yes, and the number is 61.9. That's a new number from the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index. That is up from 57.3 in February, and more to the point, uh, higher than most economists expected. So that's probably from all the rosy coverage you've been hearing here on Planet Money. Woohoo, we're doing our part. The survey includes households throughout the continental U.S., despite its name. It is not just Michigan, where, well, it'd be interesting to see what the number is just in Michigan. Confidence can't be that high there. It does look like more people around the country are expecting the overall economy to start improving, you know, sometime. Now, we should say there's debate about whether these whether it really matters what people think, you know, the economy is what it is. But if there were ever a time where it did matter what people think, if they're willing to get up and go out and spend, you know, this might be it. So, for instance, in this survey, just over 3% more people now say it's a good time to go ahead and buy, you know, big ticket items like cars. Uh, Ian Shepardson at High Frequency Economics, who we talked to a bunch, wrote that we could see, he thinks, consumption grow by maybe 1% if people are are feeling better, as the survey says. Yeah, Shepardson says that 1% would indeed be an improvement over the past few months, but it's not what you'd want to call a real recovery yet. So today we got what Citigroup said was good news, which is that they actually had a profit, and that comes on the heels of good news also from Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs. And the question for us is, and you folks out there too, is what to make of that news? I mean, we're talking about profits from from banks? I mean, really? So we called up Doug Elliott. He worked as an investment banker at one of those banks, J.P. Morgan, for 14 years. He's now with the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. And we asked him, should we really trust these latest numbers? I think we should trust the numbers, but we shouldn't uh, over-interpret them. Uh, We're still in a severe banking crisis. It will get worse before it gets better. On the other hand, seeing some signs of improvement is an excellent thing. Uh, You remember there were a few months there where there was no good news. Part of what's happened here is each of the big banks has made substantially more money on what they call fixed income trading. So that's uh, corporate bonds, other types of bonds, and also mortgage-backed securities. Yeah, I was noticing that. It's not what you would think of the core business of a bank. You know, we we, uh, make loans and people pay us back. It's it's on their, their trading desks where they're making money, right? At least it was with Citi today. Yeah, really with all of them, um, Goldman, J.P. Morgan, uh, and Citi, certainly. It was, the, it was on the investment banking side of their activities, particularly, as you say, on trading. And it, it does make sense, though. If you think about uh, what's been going on, uh, you've had the, um, these trading markets freeze up, 
And so the value that an investment bank provides of sitting in the middle between potential buyers and sellers has become a lot more valuable. And they're able to, they're able to charge a lot more. Basically, there are two ways they make money in that business. One is the, what they call the bid-ask spread. They basically buy at one price and as quickly as possible turn around and resell at a higher price. Then the other thing is the, the big banks also tend to hold inventory of these securities. So they tend to be a net owner. And what you found was that in the fourth quarter, prices got ridiculously low on a lot of these securities. And as it became clearer in the first quarter that we're not going into a depression, we merely have a very, very bad recession, uh, you found that you started to get some recovery on the value of a lot of these bonds. So I would not count on a lot more money in the future out of the fixed income trading. I think this is a little bit of a blip, but it's still nice to see something going well. Laura, I want to break down something Doug Elliott mentioned just now, and that's the idea of the bid-ask spread, where the banks buy at one price, and they wait, and they turn around, and they resell the bond at a higher price. And you might think, gee, buy low, sell high. Why don't I do that? Well, the reason, you know, isn't that risky? Because you can obviously lose, right, if you can't turn around and sell it for more. Yeah, but it turns out, Elliot says, that they actually do make money on average because the thing is they're providing a service. They're what you would call a market maker, and they provide, here's some more jargon, liquidity. In other words, if you want to sell something, they are there, and they will buy it from you. All right, so let's just run through it. Okay. Say I'm a pension fund, and pension funds own lots of bonds, and I've decided I'm going to just sell a bunch of them. My job is to try to churn the stuff I own around and, and make money, keep it moving. So I'm going to sell some of these bonds, except I look out there, and there isn't anyone buying them. So I, as the trading desk at one of these big banks, I say, okay, Laura, I will buy them from you. And the bonds last traded at 100 bucks. So, David, I want you to give me that. Uh, too bad, Laura. What? I'm Yeah, sorry. Look, I'm buying these things, and, you know, it could take me a few minutes, a few hours, or maybe weeks to find people to buy them, and the price could change. So, Laura, I know they traded for $100, but I'm only going to give you 99 bucks a piece. Okay. So I really want to get rid of them. And, David, I'm going to accept that you're taking a bit of a risk. That's fine. So how about $99 a piece? Okay, that's great. So then I turn around and I try and sell them for 100 or $101 or something. And because I bought them a little cheap from you, Laura, on average, I should make money. And Elliot says in past quarters, uh, the banks have actually lost money doing this. Things went against them, but this time they made money. We have not bottomed out. There's a lot of pain ahead. But the rate of decline is slowing. Therefore, the people who thought we really were going into a mini depression, are finding it harder and harder to make that case. And so that's showing up in all the financial markets. Basically, the bank stocks a couple months ago were priced as if we were going to hit the Great Depression. And we're not. That was an overreaction. As it becomes clear that what we have is ugly, but not of historical significance, the prices have gone up. I also want to note something that Doug Elliott told us. We had a couple of questions in the Twitter stream from people who wanted to know whether the change in our old friend mark-to-market accounting had anything to do with 
the bank's performance this time around. And he says, undoubtedly, yes, there is some impact, but we don't know how much. But that that is another reason why analysts are saying these profit numbers come certainly with an asterisk next to them. Why don't you wish you were just inside one of these banks and you could you could know the answer? Well, there are some people, of course, who are in there right now, and they're the folks who work for the Treasury Department. They're the folks who are spending every spare minute, I guess, conducting those stress tests you've heard about in the news. They're trying to figure out which banks are okay under which conditions and which ones might need more money to get through what lies ahead. So since Doug Elliott had been a former staffer at J.P. Morgan, we asked him to walk us through what stress tests are actually like? Are they, I asked him, is it like you take one really gloomy future and you say, how does your bank do then? Or do you say, here are 10,000 gloomy futures and how does it fare <laughs> under all those scenarios? There will be exactly, precisely two tests. One, just for calibration, is an expected case. The other is the true stress test. And they have precisely defined what they mean by that. And and we know the the big picture parts of it, how much the unemployment rate is assumed to be, uh, what the shrinking in the economy is assumed to be, and how much house prices would fall. What are those numbers, and are they sufficiently uh, skeptical, do you think? Uh, It's it's a great question as to whether they're sufficiently skeptical. I originally thought they were. Uh, I'm starting to have a little bit of doubt, partly because the economy has deteriorated enough since they came up with this, that it's, it's still, the stress test is clearly still worse than, uh, than what we'd expect to happen, but the margin of difference isn't as big as we thought. But it's still an ugly scenario. Uh, on the house prices, they're talking about a 22% further decline this year, and then another 7% decline in 2010. And this is off house prices that have already fallen on average something like 25%. So you're definitely talking about a very ugly scenario for house prices. Okay, David. The stress test also covers unemployment. And the adverse or worst-case scenario there that they're looking at is 10.3% at the end of 2010. Right now, we're at 8.5%. Well, let's really hope that doesn't happen. So um, one of the things that does come out of these stress tests is uh, the bottom line is kind of what is the profit or loss that you expect for the bank and how much capital will have the bank, will the bank have left? So the idea is that the regulators will then say, this is you bank, this is how much you need. uh, And you're going to have to either raise this money in six months. And if you can't find private funding, okay, the government will step in and fill the gap. So this is, of course, you know, there's a very delicate issue here. How much information is the government and how much information are the banks going to make public about these stress tests? Yeah, Elliot says that it's increasingly looking like we're going to get more information than we maybe thought. He says he's waiting for a release from the Obama administration next week that will explain a lot about how the tests are done and what we might see. And then in early May, he says, you know, we're going to get some information about the results. Whatever the results are, he says, they're, you know, it's not going to be... Okay, here's the grade. Here's here's how the banks are. You know, they won't be completely certain because there's just some stuff in there you you, you can't know. Like one is what are these toxic assets actually worth? I mean, no no one has a definite answer for that. And and Laura, you actually had one you had one last question for him. It was sort of a it was sort of a banking culture question. And we're just going to run it. I got up this morning and I am a reader of the New York Times in print form. 
And I noticed on the left-hand side, there was this column from Floyd Norris who was talking about how Goldman Sachs feels misunderstood and unloved. And they're saying that, that they posted this profit and people are saying, yeah, but you got all the bailout money and da-da-da-da. Over on the bottom right-hand of the same business page, I see this story about how AIG's chief executive has millions, it says, in Goldman. And it's money, it's $3 million stake that he got for serving on the board of Goldman and the audit committee before he took the AIG job in September. And it includes this little note from his spokeswoman who says that his stake in Goldman is a small percentage of his total net worth. Now, she's talking about $3 million. And it felt to me, as more average human, that they were trying to make me feel better about that. That $3 million was just a small thing and don't worry about it. That's a huge sum of money to me. And it just made me wonder, why are they still so tone deaf? I think the point they were trying to get across is it was a small enough portion of what he owns that you shouldn't automatically assume he would bend every effort to help Goldman. The guy's so rich that, that this doesn't matter. That's essentially the message I'm sure they're trying to put across. I, I agree with you on that point because it's easy to see where, you know, I'm not going to go out and, and become a slave of whatever because I have $2 in my pocket. But for me, it's just it, – it's hard for me to see where saying that kind of thing, that $3 million is just a small percentage of his total net worth, is going to make anybody walking around on Main Street less angry. But there's nothing they could have said, right? They could say that. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. She'll stop in a second. Um, <laughs> no, the, the, you know, the public is justifiably angry at what has happened, and they're looking around for the particular people to be angriest at. Anybody associated with AIG is an excellent candidate for that, uh, given how much of the government's money, the taxpayers' money, it's taken. Uh, but if you think about... If you think about Ed Letty's position there, if people are concerned that he's too close to Goldman in some way, what possible answer could he give besides the one that they did give? And it may not make anybody much happier, but there's no stronger answer to give. It's true. It just it just unfortunately reminds everybody else that don't worry, <laughs> these guys these guys already have a lot of money. One of the toughest things about this whole financial crisis is that, and uh, Alan Blinder, I think it was, had a, a great column recently in which he, uh, which he referenced this in passing. Unfortunately, the things we have to do to, uh, to minimize the severe pain that we're going to all feel, unfortunately, often end up rewarding people or failing to punish people that you'd really like to punish. But if you, if you did, you would end up cutting off your nose to spite your face. But that's extremely difficult for somebody on Main Street to accept. Uh, and, the, and the rationales for why it's true are complicated. And they've been told a lot of complicated things in the past that have turned out not to be true. So it's, it's a massive communication problem. Okay, folks. There you have it. Doug Elliott? telling us that we still have got a lot to put up with. And, you know, despite my sort of populist feeling about that $3 million, I got to say, I think he has a point.
Now it's time to check back in with the listener we heard from in January who was facing a potential furlough, meaning he was going to have to take some unpaid leave. Daniel Cross, he's a circuit designer in Boca Raton, Florida, who had been told his company would require all employees to take five days unpaid leave in the first quarter, and then they were going to be asked to take five more in the second quarter. When our own Caitlin Kenny first talked to Daniel, he said he wasn't sure whether... It was a prudent move to try to conserve cash to ride out the bad time or whether what the company was doing was making a last-ditch effort to try to save something before total collapse. And Daniel says sitting there in the uncertainty has been pretty tough, and it hasn't exactly brought out the best in him or in his colleagues. He shared with Caitlin an email he had received from his supervisors. The topic was professionalism. All. There's no doubt that we are all living in an uncertain and difficult time, but we cannot fall into non-professional behaviors, and there are things that cannot be tolerated on company property. For example, marker inscriptions in the restroom about your career moving into smelly places, cardboard resumes near cubes saying, we'll design circuits for for food, Uh, sarcastic whiteboard messages, etc., Please, let's get this under control, and let's take our future in our own hands positively and professionally. Thank you for your cooperation. Regards. Are the things that they're alluding to, have these things happened? Yes, yes. These are all real examples that have happened in the office. And what was the response like after you saw that email? The response was a a chorus of giggles, actually. Do you think it's going to deter anyone from these activities that they're describing as being unprofessional? Uh, Perhaps they'll tone down the worst of them, but there's still going to be quite a bit of hanging around in the halls and uh, talking about what's going on and very little work actually getting done. I was going to ask, all of this must have made it really difficult for you guys to continue to function and work when you're so uncertain about the future. Uh, Yeah, it's been really tough. I've taken to working from home on many days when possible, just to avoid the the toxic atmosphere. Right. And what, do you have any idea when you're going to get a definitive answer one way or the other about whether or not this is going to happen? No. It seems like every couple of weeks we get a communication from our our division vice president saying, I'll let you know in another couple of weeks. It was very interesting. You had someone on the podcast, uh, a guy, Radu, Ravi Rajan? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he talked about uh, rather than zombie banks, you can actually have zombie companies. That if you, if you didn't, uh, if, if, you, if you nationalize the banks, then those banks might go easy on companies that they ought to, you know, let fail. And then you have a bunch of zombie companies running around. And it's, uh, I'm beginning to think that I'm working for a zombie company. Laura, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, I can understand how uh, you know management would be, you know, it'd be miserable to work for a place 
we have kind of a poisonous yeah. negative attitude. But on the other hand, like Gallo's humor, man, sometimes that is all you got. <laughs> and it also seems like management there does not understand really the culture of the uh, you know computer chip designers and having worked for years among physicists and computer engineers and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like that memo is just begging to be <laughs> tacked, added to the things that are tacked up outside the cubicles. You got to counter humor with humor, you know? Yeah, they're going to be acting that thing out on YouTube before you know it. Um, since we last talked to Daniel, he says his situation has changed just a bit, and the official word is that part of the business is being sold and some people are moving to another state. And you know what? His furlough, the guy says he was considered too important. The work he was doing was too crucial for him to take a week off. So all that home improvement stuff he'd been planning, everything else, that's still waiting to. Your zombie company needs you. That's right. All right. We will not keep you waiting too long. Uh, our next podcast on Monday, we will be talking to you then. Until then, we're living all over the blog, npr.org slash money. Special thank you to producer and director extraordinaire Caitlin Kenny for getting us through yet another week. I'm Laura Conaway. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Thank you for listening.